Thank you so much. Good to see you guys. My name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, and uh, man, it's always awesome to have fresh faces, see new folks here, people inviting people, and then like to see the family. This is Sunridge family. So many of you show up week in and week out. I don't know what your problem is. Maybe you have a wisdom problem, but you just keep coming back. So thanks a lot. Uh, so uh, glad that you're here with us today. I got a question for you. Um, if, if you could choose success or failure, which would you choose? Dumb question, right? But think about, think about the stuff that you're working on right now, the goals that you've set, or think about what's waiting for you at work tomorrow, or a situation that you're hoping to prevail over, or a relationship that you're hoping reignites, or maybe you're just thinking about your, your number one college pick, you know. Uh, if success is the sole goal you have, then you may want to rethink that. Because though all of us want to be successful at everything that we attempt, you know, experts tell us that we learn a lot more from our failures than we do our successes. Which leads me to say, learning is way overrated. <laughs> Actually, it's not. You know, the truth is, we, we may learn nothing at all from our successes. Worse, we might learn some things that maybe wouldn't have been so great to learn through a success. Now, I want to say that I'm not anti-success. I've tried to be ambitious about the goals I've had in life and work uh, tenaciously toward them, but... Without the right perspective, success can defeat us. And there are some things, truth be told, that uh, we learn in success that would be better unlearned. That's what this message is about. The big idea, first thing in your notes is this. Today I want to talk about that the greatest threat to your future may be your current success. Let that kind of sink in for a second. The greatest threat to your future could be your current success. Now, if you're just joining us, we've been in a study of the life of Gideon. And we're wrapping that study up today. We've subtitled this study of Gideon's life when life is bigger than you. And if you've been tracking with us, you know, Gideon in the beginning is, you know, he's, the, he's reluctant. He, he, he doesn't have aspirations or dreams of success. He's just trying to stay alive and the angel of the Lord comes to him and gives him this great calling to, to be the one who leads the children of Israel out of the oppression from these Midianite tribes that are to the east of them. And it's, and it's been a struggle all the way. And he's been desperate for the confidence that only God could give someone. Life was bigger than him. But now that success is within his grasp, and he indeed succeeds, and it's a route, you're going to see, it's like, it, it's so much easier than he thought it was going to be, um, he changes. And that success that he experiences seems to quickly corrupt him. So success will not be good for him, nor the Israelites. I'm going to drop into the story in Judges 8, and you see that like this battle has ensued. If you remember where we were last week, the, uh, 
300 soldiers from Gideon's army uh, break open a jar that has a light in it. They blow a trumpet, and the Midianites are just in a panic in the middle of the night. They take off running, and it's a complete rout. And he, he and his army are in pursuit of the stragglers that are trying to retreat. But this battle has gone on longer, just even though they're victorious, than he, than he ever thought. And his resources are stretched, and his people are tired. In verse 4 of Judges 8, Gideon and his 300 men exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to Jordan and crossed it. So now we're into more Midianite territory. And he said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread. They're worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Salmuna, the kings of Midian. Now, Succoth is east of the Jordan, and that region is made up of three uh, tribes, or partial tribes, of the nation of Israel. So these are his people that he's asking this help from. And in verse 6, the officials of Succoth say, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Now, what's going on here is, in this day, it was customary to uh, confirm your victory by bringing back either the heads of the generals that you defeated or their hands. And so what they're really saying is, show, show us some proof that, uh, that you're victorious. And then in verse 7... Gideon replied, just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. Think he got a little angry there? So Gideon's expectation here is that they help him. They're brotherly tribes. And that's a valid expectation because that hospitality is a cultural norm, especially among your own people. But the people of Succoth, even though they answer rudely, they have good reason to hesitate because they're super vulnerable over there on the east side. Remember, they're separated from the largest body of Israelites, and they're over here in a really vulnerable position. They are closest to the Midianites, and they don't have a lot of resources around them. So it's kind of reasonable that they would be hesitant. You know, it wasn't so long ago that Gideon, too, was fearful. Wasn't it just a couple of half a chapter ago where he's begging for reassurance from God and concerned that he will not be victorious? But it seems like he's forgotten who he used to be. And that's the first kind of danger of success. You see, when we succeed without gratitude, achievement can make us prideful. Without gratitude, achievement can make us prideful. See, the view from the, the victorious side is different than the struggle side, isn't it? I mean, some of you can remember when you're a college, struggling college student, living in some rat-infested apartment, eating top ramen. Then you worked on your graduate degree, and now you got the big office. And maybe you've forgotten about those college days. It's easy to forget where we came from. Are you familiar with the term bougie? Bougie uh, comes from bourgeois, which means the upper middle class. But it's come to mean, you know, in the shortened term, uh, you know, someone who's kind of come up, they've, 
they're somewhat wealthy, they're kind of successful, but they pose and act like they're even more successful. What is it about success that brings out our pride? Why are we so bougie like that? You know, even the writer of Proverbs says that pride goes before a fall, and you know, that's true not just in relationships and in churches, but it's true in business. Jim Collins uh, wrote his first book called Good to Great, and this is a study of several businesses that were remarkably successful and what made them successful. But just 10 years later, he wrote a follow-up book to that called How the Mighty Fall. And what he did is he retraced his steps with some of those businesses, and what he found was it was the arrogance of their success. Some of these companies who were just marvelously successful had sunk, and it was their arrogance and their pride that came from their success that made them lose their way. You know, moral achievement can make us prideful too. We can be morally bougie. I mean, how long does it take before a humble sinner becomes a proud Pharisee? That's why James wrote in chapter 4 to the uh, Christians of that day, you boast and you brag. And people who were desperate for God to save them eventually become self-righteous. And we start to think that, well, you know, I've made great choices in my life. My family is squared away. My theology is dialed. My values are superior to others. And I love how the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 to, uh, to the Corinthians there, and he, he has just listed a bunch of moral fails. And of that, he says, there was a time when some of you were just like that. In other words, he's saying, do you remember? You used to be that way. But you have been made right with God because of what the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God have done for you. Like Gideon, we can suffer memory loss of where we came from. God pared down Gideon's army for this reason. Do you remember in Judges 7, 2, he said, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. It looks like Gideon forgot that part. And you know, we can have the same moral bouginess and memory loss and our own self-righteousness. That's why Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 9 that our salvation comes by grace. It is not by our works, lest we boast. So the next time you or I are tempted to think that we're really something, we've really achieved a lot. The next time I'm tempted to say, you know, I worked my butt off for that, be reminded that God gave you that butt. You're not so great. And the next time that you're tempted to think that your moral standing puts you above others that, that, you, that you work with or that you read about or you see them on television or they sit next to you in church, remember that you have been made right with God because of what the Lord Jesus has done for you. 
Amen. It makes me grateful for the gospel. You know, uh, we sing that one song about reckless love sometimes, and I love that line in it where it says, I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. That is so true. Success can feed our pride or it can grow our gratitude. Second thing that I think success can do with us with the wrong perspective, do to us, is without grace and success, offenses can embitter us. Without grace, offenses can embitter us. See, Gideon is offended by those who didn't help him, and, and rightfully so. It's a normal expectation, but what clicks in him is Gideon isn't just offended, he is vengeful toward those who didn't help him and, of course, his sworn enemies. And the difference here is that now he has the power to do something about it. See, before, Gideon was just a guy hiding out in a wine press threshing his grain. But now he's on top of the world. And there's something about power and success that enables us to exact our vengeance on people. In verse 15, after capturing the Midianite kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, Gideon returns to Succoth, and he says, Hey, do you remember when you said to me, Why should we help you out and give you some bread? And in Judges 8.16, he took the elders of the town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He has them beaten. And, and more than that, he seeks to humiliate the Midianite kings, these, these men that are champions of their armies. And it is very typical at this time to execute those kings or to put them in abject servitude. And, um, but that's not enough for Gideon. He wants to humiliate them by having a boy execute them. And in J- Judges 8.20, he turns to Jether, his oldest son, and he says, kill them. But Jether would not draw a sword because he was only a boy and he was afraid. It's like that, that just put him in a whole panic to take a life of these great warriors in front of him. And so what, what Gideon's trying to do is like he's trying to rob these men of the last bit of honor they have as fellow warriors. And their last thought before they're executed is humiliation. Like there's been a motive change for Gideon. Something dark has happened in him. And I, and I think I see it in verse 7 of Judges 8 when Gideon replied to the, uh, the leaders of Succoth just for that. Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hands, I will tear your flesh and with desert thorns and briars, which he did. But have you ever used that phrase just for that? Maybe you said to your brother and sister when you were little, just before you like gave him a swirly or something, just for that? Or is it just me? (laughs) What happens here is that Gideon's no longer motivated by the call of God in his life. He's no longer dependent upon God's grace for this thing in front of him, but he's entirely motivated by revenge. He's not seeking the freedom of others. He's he's seeking to inflict pain on those that he thinks are deserving. And so he's running on an entirely different fuel now. 
before. He's existing off the confidence that God gives him for the challenge before him. And now the thing that is driving him is bitterness. I love what the writer of Hebrews says about bitterness as a motivator in Hebrews 12, 15. He he writes, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And if you've been in church for a while, you're familiar with that verse. And we think about, when I read, I think about these roots entangling and twisting and holding you. Or I think about a tumor, a cancer tumor, the way it can wind itself around your organs. And it just spreads. And it it puts you in its grip. That's what bitterness does. And when it does that, it spills over onto everybody around you. Don't raise your hand, but like, how many of you have had that friend that is like so bitter that every story, everything that happens, it's like, oh yeah, that's my ex, blah, 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 you know? It's like, it's just always there at the back of their mind, entirely motivated by that. And that's, that's a terrible way to live, but it's much worse than that. It isn't just that that, that bitterness will entangle you and spill over to others, we could miss the grace of God. Did you catch that? Let's look at the verse again in 12, Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. When we're motivated by bitterness, we miss the grace of God in our lives. It's like missing the best thing on earth. Next week, we're going to start a series called Grace Like Water. It's going to take us past Easter, but we're going to be talking about the grace of God and how it is like water. You can't can't live without it. We thirst for it. It can be contaminated. These are all some of the things that we're going to look at, but like to me, there's nothing better than having the grace of God in my life. And to miss it is to miss everything else. To be motivated by bitterness is to miss all the goodness that's going on around you and what God is at, at hand at working. Past few summers, my family and I, we've been traveling to my wife's hometown, Holland, Michigan, and getting a cottage and staying on Lake Michigan and having her family come and visit us. And it's just been fantastic. Michigan is an amazing place in the summer. <laughs> and uh, I kind of bagged on Michigan not too long ago, and uh, I found out that my nieces who live in Holland listen to my messages. Because <laughs> after it posted, they, they texted me and said, Hey, Uncle Britt. What's with, like, being down on Michigan? They totally called me out. So this is a little test to see if they're listening. (laughs) Allison, Amanda. Um, And so they've been lovely vacations. But last summer, there was, you know, the weather didn't really cooperate the way I wanted it to. And uh, so I was constantly looking at my weather app on my phone, like, multiple times in an hour watching it change because if you know one thing about the weather in the Midwest, if you don't like it now, stick around. It's going to change. 
And it kept changing, you know, from, oh, now the sun's, no, it's going to rain. And it's like, I was so obsessed by that. My family will tell you that, man, dad was a real bummer on that vacation because all he did was look at his phone and keep talking about the weather. That's what it's like to be motivated by something other than the grace of God, especially bitterness, because you're missing all the wonderful things that God is doing around you. You see, bitterness not only makes us incapable of expressing the grace of God to others, it makes us incapable of experiencing it ourselves. So grace, then, is a far better motivator for life than bitterness. That's important because if you live in this world, and all of you are, um, you're going to be hurt, you're going to be disappointed, you're going to have expectations of someone and they're not going to come through, you're going to be offended. Sometimes people are going to hurt you intentionally. And if you allow that to grab a hold of you, it will embitter you and you will miss the grace of God. Without grace, we're susceptible to just life embittering us. Next, when, when we succeed without humility, admiration can corrupt us. Without humility, admiration can corrupt us. See, Gideon's success makes him an immediate celebrity leader. Verse 22, the Israelites, after the victory, said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you've saved us out of the land of Midian. And uh, basically they're saying, hey, we want a hereditary monarchy. We will, you lead us now, then your son, then your grandchildren. We want this to be a dynasty of Gideonites. So he has instant celebrity. And, of course, you know, people are wired for leadership. We, we need leaders. An organization is better under a good leader. A family is better under, a good, under good leadership. A church is better with good leadership. Any place people are together, we, we are designed for leadership. But that's, that's not who Gideon is becoming. And at first blush, he looks virtuous. In verse 23, uh, but Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. It sounds really spiritual, but Gideon's actions don't match his words. And even though he's saying, I'm not going to be king, he immediately goes about acting like a king. Verse 24, then he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. So in other words, pay me. So, I don't want to be your king, but I do want you to pay up. And he becomes wealthy between that and the spoils of his victory. He's now wealthy, and for all intents and purposes, whatever Gideon has said, he is king. And he is the king of the worst kind because he feigns humility while pursuing power and wealth. That's a hypocrisy that only power can afford someone. By the end of chapter 8, he has all the signs of being king. He has great wealth. He has many wives. He has concubines. He even has a son that he names Abimelech, which is interpreted, my father is king. (laughs) 
Now, I'm not, I'm not down on Gideon, but the thing is, like, we all want to rule. We want, we want to rule ourselves, let's just face it, and we want to rule others. Every one of us, deep down inside, we want to be king or queen. And when that power that God gives us through our success or our wealth or admiration of others, when, when that is corrupted and not shaped by what God is doing in our lives and the humility that comes with it, the ugly comes out of us. You might, you might have heard this quote from Abraham Lincoln, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test his character, give him power. Isn't that true? Think about that person that was your friend in college and now they become your floor supervisor and then all the things that you used to do with him, now it's against the rules and he's busting your chops about it. You remember that guy? You remember when your friend became a boss at work and all the antics you used to play, you know, when the boss was away? Now that he's boss, he's telling you, hey, you can't do that anymore. That's always weird, isn't it? We shouldn't be doing any of those things, can I just point out, but you know where I'm going with that. And it's like I've watched the news recently like with great interest about the whole college admission scandal. Are you following this? That the wealthy and the powerful have been buying their way, their children's ways into universities they could not otherwise have gotten into. We all want to be king. And when we, when we get admiration without humility, we will make sure that we become king or queen. And that's the exact opposite of Jesus' way. Jesus' way was to use his power for those who had none. He used his healing power for the sick. He made statements like, blessed are the meek. And once when he overheard his disciples arguing about who was going to be king, he said this in Mark 9.35, if anyone wants to be first, must be the very last and servant of all. In other words, great power and great, great success gives us opportunity to use that to serve in a way that we could not without it. Paul writes in Galatians 5.13, Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. And I know that Paul is talking about the grace of God and the freedom that comes there, but isn't it true that wealth and success bring a freedom that enables us to indulge ourselves rather than serving one another in love? See, when success and pride are brought together, that is a toxic combination. You know, you have two household products in your house. If you mix them, it could kill you, ammonia and bleach. So if one day you're scrubbing your toilet and you put bleach in there, you say, well, I'm going to put some extra clean on this. I'm going to pour ammonia in there. You're creating hydrochloric acid, which is going to give off chlorine gas. And your spouse could come home and find you dead right there because you brought two products together that combined their toxic. Pride and success are just like that. So it begs the question, you know, if, if you're successful, if you're influential, if you're powerful, 
Why do you have that? Why has God blessed you in that way? Now, now Gideon has his sights set on something far more than being king, and this is the last thing I want to talk about today. When we succeed without truth, religion can deify us. Without truth, religion can deify us. You see, Gideon isn't satisfied with merely being king. He grabs all the power he can when he can. But, and, and he doesn't just establish himself as king. He establishes himself as a religious authority. In Judges 8.27, Gideon made the gold that he had collected into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. Now, an ephod is a sleeveless garment, kind of looks like a long vest that priests would wear. And this garment was put on when uh, they were making a decision or uh, announcing something. That, the ephod is symbolic of God's leading, and it's used often in determining God's will. As these stones attached to that's details I don't want to get into right now, but Gideon makes an, an ephod for himself. And the problem with that is the ephod is to be worn by the priest, and Gideon is not a priest. And his, his town of worship, his town is not a place of worship. So Gideon, in this move, he establishes himself as a priest, and his hometown is the place to come where he would have all the power and his wealth would show the most. Do you think that that's going to influence people? And his admirers are only too willing to comply. In verse 27, uh, the writer says, all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. They worshiped his ephod. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. This was not a good thing. This, this word prostitute is, is meant just like you heard it. It's, it's basically the people are unfaithful to God, and they've been led there by Gideon. So Gideon goes, goes from a humble servant seeking to lead the Israelites to freedom to leading the nation away from God. And it's his success that enables him to do so. See, it's success and his power and his wealth that enables Gideon to no longer stand on the truth, but to bend the truth using his power and his wealth for his own convenience. You know, history is filled with powerful people who corrupt religion by placing themselves above the truth. You guys have heard of Henry VIII. And um, I'd say until a few years ago, what I knew about Henry VIII was that Herman's Hermit sang about him. I'm Henry VIII, I am, you know. Do you guys want me to finish it? No. I understand. But, you know, Henry VIII was a Catholic in the beginning. Do you know that? And, in fact, he he was so strongly Catholic that he backed the Pope against Martin Luther, the leader of the Reformation. And he he was so instrumental in that 
that the Pope gave him this lofty title of defender of the faith because he opposed Luther's thesis. But 10 years later, Henry breaks with the Catholic Church. And he aligns himself with two Protestant reformers, Thomas Cromwell and Thomas, um, I, lost, um, I lost my place in my notes here. Scratch that from the notes. Thomas Cranmer, and he's a clergyman. So he connects himself to these two and because they help him figure out a way to divorce his first wife, Catherine, because he's been smitten with Anne Boleyn. And the Pope wouldn't let him out of it. So Henry switches religion. And these two people make it possible for him to divorce Catherine, marry Anne, and then Cromwell later assists him in, in beheading Anne under the um, false accusation that uh, she was uh, adulterous and incestuous, which virtually every historian agrees that that was a false accusation. So here's a person of power using religion to get their way. When we place ourselves above the truth in any way, either because it's convenient for us or because uh, because we have the power to do so. When we, when we put ourselves above the truth rather than shaping ourselves to the truth, we become idolaters. Paul writes in Colossians 3, 5 that we should put to death the earthly things that are lurking within us that are idolatry. That is, within all of us, we have this potential there are things lurking within us that make us susceptible to, to worshiping ourselves and figuring out a way to do so and opposing the truth. And when we substitute ourselves over the truth, then we're slipping toward idolatry. When we bend the truth to accommodate our viewpoint or our preferences or our conveniences, in essence, we are making ourselves God. And oftentimes, it is our success and our power and our freedom that enables us to do so, to, to free ourselves from the dependency of obedience. Remember when Gideon was desperate for God and he was willing to take that next step, as scary as it was? And now he's just overriding anything and everything that he knows to be true. And that's in direct conflict to living life the way Jesus expressed it should be in Mark 12, 30, when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That is to say that there should be nothing between us and God. Without the truth, we can use religion to deify ourselves. You know, Gideon, in my opinion, was far better before he was successful. Before success, each time he responded to God's prompting, a word from the angel of the Lord, even though he was insecure, he took a step in faith, 
He was humble. He responded every time God gave him that sign in gratitude and worship. But those changes weren't permanent in him. Gideon was supposed to save Israel and point them back to God, and instead Gideon becomes prideful and vengeful. He abuses his authority, and he becomes idolatrous. And because of that, this man that was placed in this critical place, because he takes the wrong path and becomes heady with his success, the Israelites are right back where they started from. Remember at the beginning of this series on Judges or Gideon, we talked about the cycle of Judges where the Israelites would fall away because of apathy and then God would bring consequences and that would cause them to repent and then that repentance would bring blessing and then the blessing would bring more apathy and then the apathy would bring God's judgment and it just spins around and around and around and they're right back where they started from, and it's just sad. It's sad because Gideon's success ruined him and those that were depending on him. Success can ruin us. The only way that we can galvanize ourselves from allowing success to take us somewhere far from God or anything else is to allow our lives to be shaped by the good news of Jesus Christ. That the gospel should be informing how we respond both in failure and success. And when, when, when our lives are being shaped by God's grace in our lives, then we're grateful rather than becoming prideful. And God's grace can kind of lubricate the friction in the, in the places that people have hurt us. And then even though we might be on the top of the world and have all kinds of admirers, there's, there's a grounding in the humility, realizing that, that my, righteousness, my righteousness, my achievements, they come from God. And when we're allowing the gospel to shape us, we always will have truth preeminent over our preferences and our conveniences and our own selfish motives. Don't let success ruin you. Let's pray.